Well, let's open to Romans chapter 13. Romans and the 13th chapter. Romans 13, and let's consider this great topic of how we're supposed to be citizens of heaven and of earth. Next Sunday, July 4th, our nation will celebrate its birth. I'd like to take two Sundays and explore a question that we first considered when we were in Romans 13, but really didn't get into too deeply. This is a chapter that applies the gospel that Paul developed in Romans 1 through 8 to the question of our citizenship in earthly kingdoms. How do we live as citizens on earth when our true citizenship is in heaven or the new creation? American Christians fiercely and I mean fiercely, divide over the application of Romans 13. But for a moment, let's ignore the application and focus on the text. What does it say? This was written long before America was born. What does the text say? Verse 1 is a universal statement. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. I know Christians who already bristle at that statement. They immediately set about to qualify it. Very often, they will qualify it out of existence. However, verse 1 establishes our default setting. The gospel is incompatible with anarchy and insurrectionism. When Christians carried crosses and American flags and broke through police barriers and stormed the Capitol building last January, they betrayed the gospel. Now, Paul insists three times the state's authority is derived from God. At the end of verse 1, he says it twice. For there is no authority except from God. God establishes human government. Keep reading. And those that exist have been instituted by God. If you're wondering where does it come from, God instituted it. In verse 2, he says the same thing, the authorities that God has appointed Paul really could not be clearer. He says that three times, God appoints human government. Even when you live in a democracy and vote for your rulers, those that exist have been instituted by God. I vote in every election because I believe in human responsibility. Simultaneously, I believe that God put President Trump in office and President Biden in office. It's not my place to sort out the tension, the tension between human responsibility and divine sovereignty when the Bible insists on both. 
Now, Paul goes on in verse 2 to insist that resistance to human government brings a person under divine judgment. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. Now, I'm certain that we have questions Right away, we think about all the diabolical governments through all of human history. I understand. But don't qualify verse 2 out of existence with all of your questions. The verse means something, not nothing. But let's briefly speak to the matter of civil disobedience. Does verse 2 prohibit any civil disobedience whatsoever? Traditionally, Christians have recognized two forms of dissent. First, Christians have recognized the legitimacy of dissent from a government edict within prescribed standards of dissent. For example, we have constitutional rights to free speech and peaceful protest in our country. And commendably, Martin Luther King took advantage of both to resist truly evil laws in our country. Friends, Jim Crow laws were wicked. Wicked laws in our country. They were completely contrary to the gospel ideal of the equality of all men and women. The term Christian itself derives from the moment in church history in Acts 11 where for the first time we read of a racially integrated church So the Christian name begins. Put Jews and Gentiles together. What are we going to call them? Christians. Secondly, Christians have recognized the legitimacy of resisting a government edict that directly contradicts clear God-given commands. Now, Paul does not deal with that issue here in Romans 13. But listen to this marvelous statement. In Daniel 3 and verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Nebuchadnezzar commanded, friends, the Hebrew children to worship an idol. And the Hebrews refused because God commanded, you shall have no other gods before me. And legitimately, they took the king's command and they set it aside. When the apostles were ordered to cease preaching the gospel, they took the king's command and they set it aside. But be careful with these kinds of texts. Notice the Hebrew children did not become anarchists. They passively yielded up their bodies, offering their bodies for martyrdom. I can't imagine the Hebrew children storming the capital. So friends, there is a place for civil disobedience. Paul is not addressing that issue here in Romans 13. Rather, what Paul is doing is he is articulating our default position. 
As Christians, we should submit to human government. But I want to deal with a problem that I think is becoming increasingly manifested in American evangelical churches. And I don't sense it here at our church, but I really want us to be fortified in this issue so that our thinking isn't skewed and off the scriptures. Christians speak of civil disobedience almost as a continuous moral duty. Civil disobedience has become the default in people's thinking. If I'm following God, then I've just got to constantly resist the government. But Paul clearly says in verse 2, you disobey God when you disobey human government. And you will receive God's judgment. And what that means is that some civil disobedience... Perhaps most civil disobedience is actually divine disobedience. Now really let that sink in. And tell me if I'm abusing the text. Civil disobedience is often disobedience to God. Look at verse 2. Read it very carefully. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities, civil disobedience, resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. So civil disobedience may indeed be divine disobedience. You better make sure that you have a really, really, really good scripturally defensible reason before you engage in civil disobedience. It really should be our last resort, not our first duty. And I I think what's becoming true, it's, it's becoming our first duty in the minds of many people. Jesus himself on trial before Pilate affirmed, you would have no authority over me at all unless it was given you from above. Now think about this statement. You, Pilate, have no authority unless God gave it to you. God gave Pilate his authority. And would you say Pilate abused his authority in the worst way imaginable? The greatest crime in all of human history. He washed his hands, but he was not innocent. Nevertheless, Jesus did not allow Peter to engage in civil disobedience. Peter, put away your sword. Some Christians talk about taking up arms and march on the Capitol every time a ruler abuses his authority. Friends, you do not get that notion from Jesus. Peter, put away your sword. Now, In light of Romans 13 and July 4th, I really want to deal with a concerning issue where I think there is some unscriptural thinking that really has crept into evangelical gospel preaching churches. You read it in Christian literature, you hear it on the radio a lot. It's the issue of Christian nationalism. Christian nationalism. What exactly is that? Well, I asked the members of our church, what's the first thing that comes to mind when you hear the term Christian nationalism? Just curious, what comes to mind? Here's what I got. America was founded as a Christian nation. Trump supporters. Singing patriotic hymns with the flag on the platform on Memorial Day. Mike Huckabee. Rodeos. One told me, well, I really can't define it, but I know it when I see it. 
Well, Christian nationalism is actually rather difficult to define succinctly, but let's take a stab at it. Christian nationalism argues that America was founded as a Christian nation. Further, we are swiftly losing our Christian nation. Therefore, we need to do everything we can to take our country back for God. Even if that requires taking up arms and engaging in violence, fight for what you believe in, God and country. In fact, the destiny of the world hangs in the balance of whether we can preserve our Christian American heritage. Now, next week, I'm going to return to the question of our founding. Were we founded as a Christian nation? And I got some help from Dr. Dunn on this question over a year ago. All right? I'm going to deal with that next week. And it's going to be positive, by the way, next week, okay? This isn't about being negative on July 4th, not by any means. But I do want to be careful. Here's an outgrowth of Christian nationalism. If we don't preserve America's Christian heritage, that is, if we don't elect a patriotic citizen like Donald Trump to office, then the cause of Christ will be lost. It really comes down to every election going our way. Some believe the end times will be upon us. The Antichrist will be revealed. We're headed straight toward Armageddon if Trump doesn't get reinstated by August. People who think this way, literally. I'm not kidding. If we don't put Trump back in August, I mean, that's it. That's it. Prepare for the end. In other words, Christian nationalism views the fortunes of Christianity as bound up with the fortunes of America. As if they're one and the same. A strong American economy and the gospel go hand in hand. Voting for a man who is pro-American business, regardless of his bragging about assaulting women, is essential to keeping the Christian flame burning brightly in our world. Christian nationalism elevates economic vitality over biblical morality. Second example protecting my Second Amendment rights to keep an arsenal in my basement is essential to protecting Christianity. I literally had a Christian brother tell me recently, he's no dummy, he was a former faculty at Bob Jones actually, he said to me, when they come for my guns, and he has lots of them apparently, when they come for my guns, I'm going to stand in the street and I'm just going to stand up and fight as a Christian. And I got to think, well, what, what exactly does that mean? You're going you're to come out of your house with your guns, and you're going to start killing people. Is that what you mean? Like, when I really put it to him that way, he was like, yeah, when it comes down to it, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to start killing people. You're, okay, you're going to kill people in the name of Jesus Christ. Well, if it comes to that, it comes to that. And by the way, I'm not opposed to owning a gun. You understand that. But I do wonder whether there is confusion in the church today. On the one hand, Christians believe we are in the world, but not of the world. We look like Abraham did for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. On the other hand, during every election cycle, Christians go looking for the most uh, Christian candidate. Supporting that candidate becomes essential to preserving the gospel and advancing the kingdom of Christ. Without that candidate, all is lost. 
It happens every four years. The candidate, regardless of his morality, theology, or the legitimacy of his conversion, becomes the Christian champion for truth. We're just one election away from the complete collapse of America and the end of Christianity as we know it, as if they go together. Every election, have you noticed this, is the most important of our lifetime. Every one, every four years. Church historian Thomas Kidd writes perceptively on Christian nationalism. In 2020, he wrote, I recently saw a yard sign that read, Make Faith Great Again, Trump 2020. I wondered, how can re-electing Donald Trump make faith great again? What faith? And when did it stop being great? Those are really good questions. Is the Christian faith great only if Donald Trump occupies the White House? Are we saying it's not great today? And if you want to say, well, it's not great today. Is Christianity great regardless of who occupies the White House? The fortunes of Christianity depend on the outcome of a single election. The fortunes of Christ's church depend on the success of any single country. Many American Christians are quite confused. They seem to think Christianity is great only when America is great. If America ceases to be great, then Christianity ceases to be great. Friends, that is blasphemous. Christianity is great because Christ is great. So do not succumb to the notion that America and Christianity are so indissolubly united that the fortunes and failures of one become the fortunes and failures of the other. That's Christian nationalism. Now, by the way, I'm, I'm very pro-America. And I'm going to talk more about this next week. I just, I just don't want us to get theologically skewed. But let's talk for a moment about the problematic outcome of Christian nationalism. Christian nationalism supposedly gives Christians just carte blanche approval to resist any and every edict of the government. Civil disobedience becomes an essential Christian virtue. Just add it to the Beatitudes, because apparently Christ forgot to stick it in there. And what happens is Romans 13 gets marginalized, and suddenly every minor issue becomes a clarion call to civil disobedience. Refusing to wear a face mask during a pandemic is morally equivalent to Daniel's refusal to stop praying daily to his God. It's as if they're the same thing, right? I mean, first they're going to tell us, wear a face mask during a pandemic, then they're going to raise our taxes, then they're going to take away our guns, and before you know it, all of our freedoms are gone. I'm not exaggerating when I tell you people think this way. Just look at Facebook, look at social media. First, it's the face mask. And then all Christians are going to be rounded up and thrown into concentration camps. COVID-19 is ultimately paving the way for the Antichrist and the one world government. Therefore, it's my patriotic Christian duty to publish every anti-face mask article I can find on Facebook. It's really about the gospel, ultimately. Friends, when you follow that line of reasoning out there on social media, it all gets rather muddled Protecting our American economy is a Christian prerogative. Guaranteeing that no illegal alien gets medical treatment before an American citizen becomes a Christian virtue. Protecting American jobs is essential to preserving the American prosperity gospel. 
And somehow in all that, Christ's redemptive interest in the nations gets lost. Here's another example. This, this one really struck home with me. It comes from 2017. In Christian nationalism, defending the American military becomes a defense of Christianity and vice versa. Taken to extremes, a defense of Christianity requires that America has a robust military, a massive nuclear arsenal, and bunker-busting bombs. How many of you recall the Moab bomb? You remember this, the Moab, right? Some of you, the Moab, big deal back, on, back in 2017. On April 13th, 2017, many evangelicals celebrated the new Trump administration's use of the Moab, which stands for the mother of all bombs. This was a 21,000-pound explosive that detonated over a tunnel in eastern Afghanistan, the Moab targeted a network of 600 to 800 ISIS fighters. These were brutal Islamic combatants. Now, I personally support responding to terrorism with military force. I have no problem with that. I want you to understand. When I saw the Twin Towers come down, I thought, we've got to respond. I have no problem with that. I have no problem with the military. Understand that. When people take jetliners, turn them into missiles, and send them roaring into skyscrapers, friends, what the Bible says about that is God hates that. Literally, God hates violence. He hates violence of any kind. And the Bible tells us the state does not bear the sword in vain. So there are times when a military response is called for. So don't anyone misinterpret what I'm saying as if I'm some sort of pacifist. Although, by the way, that was the position of the early church for the first 300 years before Constantine. Around the time of the Moab detonation, I learned from a former American army ranger who was now a missionary with the Back to Jerusalem movement that Chinese Christian missionaries were working inside of, inside, of, inside of Afghanistan to convert ISIS combatants to Christianity. The Back to Jerusalem movement, you've heard of it possibly, is a swelling missionary force seeking to carry the gospel through China into Islamic countries and all the way back to Jerusalem. And this former army ranger who travels with the Back to Jerusalem movement said he knows of single Chinese young ladies who are crossing the borders into these Islamic countries like Iran and Iraq and Afghanistan. And they are literally evangelizing ISIS. He says, I know who they are, I know where they are, and I know they're having success. That was incredible to me. They are trying to reach with the gospel the same ISIS combatants that were blown to smithereens by the Moab. Now, is there some conflict within you when you hear this? And I'm not going to try to sort this all out, all right? God is sovereign, and I believe that God can use a state to take out terrorists. I'm not questioning that. 
But I just want to know what really gets you more excited. If you are more excited about the Moab than the Back to Jerusalem movement, your conception of Christianity has been skewed by Christian nationalism. That's what I'm saying. Your earthly citizenship has eclipsed your heavenly citizenship. So again, let's be clear. There is nowhere I would rather live than in America. I love our flag. I love our history. I have visited our, camp, our capital I don't even know how many times. I love American church history. I teach it every year. I love it. I love the pristine beauty of our national parks. I hope before I die to see them all. May not happen. And friends, I rejoice at the collective labors to overcome the enormous evils of our American past. I am grateful to worship today with my black and Native American Christian brothers and sisters. That was an impossibility in previous centuries. But understand that my first loyalty is to Christ and His kingdom. And that's why I get a whole lot more excited about my fellow Chinese kingdom citizens evangelizing ISIS than my fellow American citizens bombing ISIS. It just makes me a whole lot more excited, doesn't it, to you? I hope so. All right, friends, this country will ultimately go the way of all earthly kingdoms. The Easter King, who resurrected with all authority will one day take his rod of iron and he will dash this country to pieces. He does it with every country ultimately. When he's through with a nation, he destroys it and moves on. It's happened over and over and over again. But friends, my citizenship in heaven with my former with former Chinese communists and Islamic ISIS militants is going to go on forever. I mean, my citizenship here on earth is going to end. My country is going to end someday. But my citizenship in heaven is going to go on forever. And that will include Muslim terrorists who, like Paul, converted to Christianity. Now, at the risk of filling this sermon with too much history... I'm only doing this because we're coming up on July 4th. I really want to take a little journey back in time and just explain where this idea of Christian nationalism began so that we understand how to think about it appropriately. Eusebius was born in the year 260 and eventually became the bishop of Caesarea in Israel. Eusebius was a pastor and a theologian that he is best remembered today as an early historian of the church. Eusebius lived through the bitter days of the Diocletian persecution. The Roman Empire at that point destroyed all church buildings, killed all church leaders, and forced all Christians on pain of death to sacrifice to the gods. If you don't sacrifice to the gods, you're dead. That persecution just tore through the Roman Empire. Eusebius also witnessed the Edict of Toleration in 311, which granted freedom to Christians everywhere. And he witnessed the conversion of the Emperor Constantine, the general, the military general Constantine, to Christianity. 
Eusebius is one of our best sources on the Edict of Milan, which transformed Christianity from a persecuted minority to the official religion of the empire. Hardly ever has the church witnessed such a dramatic transformation as it did during the life of Eusebius. In his biography of Constantine, Eusebius writes, people now lost all fear of their former oppressors and celebrated brilliant festivals. Light was everywhere. With dance and song and city and country alike, they gave honor first to the supreme God as they had been instructed, and then to the pious emperor and his sons, dear to God. Well, according to Eusebius, the Christianization of Rome under Constantine was the final triumph of the church in the world. If the Diocletian persecution was the tribulation, then Constantine gave us the millennium. And Constantine, the military general, gives us the idea of a Christian nation or a Christian empire. And Christian nationalism has a very long history in the world. The Byzantine Empire preserved Constantine's Christian empire in the east, and it became very militaristic. Charlemagne was crowned, get this, holy Roman emperor in the west. In Reformation Europe, both Protestants and Catholics alike believed they could build distinctly Christian nations. The English monarchs viewed themselves as both the head of the nation and the head of the church, as if they're all the same. To be born in England is to be born Anglican. And from England, the concept of a Christian nation colonized the New World, especially in Puritan New England. Diverse in the Atlantic aboard the Arbella, John Winthrop, who became the governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony there in New England, preached a seminal sermon as the New World hove into view. This is one of the most famous sermons in all of American history. We shall be, Winthrop said, a city on a hill, a beacon of light for all the world to see. Winthrop exclaimed, as a city on a hill, the eyes of all people are upon us. Winthrop also warned of failure. If we shall deal falsely with our God in this work we have undertaken and so cause him to withdraw his present help from us, we shall be made a story and a byword through the world. We're going to go out. We're going to build a Christian nation, a city on a hill. Now, this phrase, city on a hill, derived from the Sermon on the Mount, has become an enduring symbol for American Christianity, a justification for American exceptionalism. On January 9th, 1961, President-elect John F. Kennedy quoted the phrase addressing the General Court of Massachusetts. Here's what he said. I have been guided by the standard John Winthrop set before his shipmates on the flagship Arbella 331 years ago as they too face the task of building a new government on a perilous frontier. Quote, we must always consider, he said, that we shall be a city upon a hill. The eyes of all people are upon us. Kennedy said, today the eyes of all people are truly upon us. And our governments in every branch, at every level, national, state, and local must be as a city upon a hill constructed and inhabited by men aware of their great trust and their great responsibilities. 
Those are inspiring words. Ronald Reagan also referenced Winthrop in his elective election eve address. It was called A Vision for America, delivered on November 30th, 1980. I have quoted John Winthrop's words more than once on the campaign trail this year, for I believe that Americans in 1980 are every bit as committed to that vision of a shining city in the hill as were long ago settlers. On June 2nd, 2006, Senator Barack Obama also referenced the city on a hill at his commencement address at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. He said beautifully, it was right here in the waters around us where the American experiment began. As the earliest settlers arrived on the shores of Boston and Salem and Plymouth, they dreamed of building a city upon a hill. And the world watched waiting to see if this improbable idea called America would succeed. Again, beautiful words. But I want to know, what exactly is a city on a hill? What is that? In his address, Reagan went on to say, visitors to that city on the Potomac do not come as white or black, red or yellow, I don't think he'd use that terminology today. They are not Jews or Christians, conservatives or liberals or Democrats or Republicans. They are Americans, awed by what has gone before, proud of what for them is still a shining city on a hill. Neither Jews nor Christians, but Americans. In his farewell speech on January 11th, Reagan said, this is 1989, I have spoken of the shining city all my political life, but I don't know if I ever quite communicated what I saw when I said it. But in my mind, it was a tall, proud city built on rocks stronger than oceans, windswept, God-blessed, and teeming with people of all kinds, living in harmony and peace. A city with free ports that hummed with commerce and creativity. And if there had to be city walls, the walls had doors. And the doors were open to anyone with the will and the heart to get here. That's how I saw it and see it still. Barack Obama also went on to say, More than half of you represent the very first member of your family ever to attend college. In the most diverse university in all of New England, I look out at a sea of faces that are African-American and Hispanic-American and Asian-American and Arab-American. I see students that have come here from over 100 different countries, believing like those first settlers that they too could find a home in this city on a hill, that they too could find success in this unlikeliest of places. Now, friends, as a Christian thinking biblically about my beloved America, the country of my birth, I actually find these words of Reagan and Obama very inspiring. And I will go so far as to say that I agree with both. I love Reagan's dream of a city full of commerce and activity because I believe that's compatible with the dominion mandate given in Genesis. I support capitalism 
The, the original Adam Smith version of capitalism. There's different varieties out there. Because I find it to be compatible with the biblical view of man, which requires freedom and industry. I think our government set up is really conducive to fulfilling the dominion mandate given in Genesis. I love the ethnic diversity celebrated by Barack Obama. I have always supported legal immigration. My ancestors were not Native Americans, and probably yours weren't either. They were immigrants coming for freedom and opportunity. I have a son who was abandoned by his native country and achieved U.S. citizenship the moment the Delta airplane touched down in Detroit. It was a proud moment for me. The Bible, friends, celebrates the diversity that we find in our country, and it envisions diversity in the New Jerusalem, a city filled with light, that glorious city teeming with peoples from every tribe and tongue and nation. I mean, why not labor to build a country, to build a city that anticipates the New Jerusalem? Why not? So on the one hand, I'm very sympathetic with much of this, but I am disturbed by Reagan's statement, they are not Jews or Christians, because I am a Christian. And my loyalty to Christ and His kingdom infinitely surpasses my loyalty to America, and I'm not ashamed of that. I'm also disturbed when I read the whole sermon that Winthrop preached aboard the Arbella. Mark Twain put it well, a classic is a work that everybody quotes and nobody reads. Winthrop's sermon was entitled, A Model of Christian Charity. And not only did it call the Puritans to be a city on a hill, it also invoked God's, quote, special commission to Saul to destroy Amalek. If America was the new promised land, who were her native inhabitants? Many, though certainly not all Puritans, came to view the Native Americans as Amalekites. Not as potential kingdom converts, but Amalekites fit for destruction by Joshua and the invading Hebrews. Something went terribly wrong with her theology. In 1689, the Reverend Cotton Mather, one of the most respected and influential Puritan pastors in colonial New England, preached nothing short of Indian genocide. Invoking Moses' wilderness prayer for Joshua's troops, Mather exclaimed, While you fight, we'll pray. We'll keep in the mount with our hands lifted up while you are in the field with your lives in your hands against the Amalek that is now annoying this Israel in the wilderness. To die in battle, Mather claims, and we pass for a sort of martyrdom. You are fighting that the churches of God may not be extinguished, and the wigwams of the heathen swarming in their room. Rising to a crescendo, Mather exclaimed, when once you have but got the track of those ravenous howling wolves, then pursue them vigorously. Turn not back till they are consumed. Wound them that they shall not be able to rise. Let there be none to save them, but beat them small as the dust before the wind and cast them out as dirt in the streets. Vengeance, dear countrymen, vengeance. Let your courage in the name of God be daring enough to execute that vengeance on them. And unfortunately, 
the Christian converts that had been won through John Elliott's ministry were exterminated in the genocide. They failed to take up arms and they were exterminated. Christian converts. Well, is this really how you model Christian charity? Friends, if that's your city on the hill, I utterly reject it. Christianity has nothing to do with jihad. And this is precisely the problem that many Christians had in the century following Constantine when Christianity became increasingly militaristic. Then Constantine goes out and he says, convert, I'm going to kill you. Charlemagne built his holy Roman Empire on the edge of a sword rather than the gospel of peace. I mean, literally, if you don't convert, you're dead. That doesn't work. The fate of the church never rests in the military prowess of a nation, whether in Constantine's legions or bunker-busting bombs. The fate of the church rests entirely upon the power of the resurrection. That's it. That's it, friends. That's where the power is in the resurrection. Now, in conclusion, let's turn to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. And here's where Jesus first spoke of a city on a hill. And I realize that I have probably raised more questions than I've answered today. All right. This is a two-part sermon, so come back next week. All right. That I just, I really, I really want us to think clearly, distinct categories about our two citizenships. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, friends, is an evangelistic masterpiece. What Jesus does in the sermon is to call people to nothing short of absolute perfection. That is literally what Jesus wants in this sermon. Jesus demands the impossible. It's not enough to say, well, I don't commit adultery, you can never even lust. It's not enough to say, well, I don't murder, you can never even hate. Look at Matthew 5 and verse 48. You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. What? Yes. This is what Jesus demands from the world. Perfection. This is what Jesus demands of every one of you. Perfection. You say, that's impossible. Well, when you conclude the sermon, it's perfectly apparent that you need a perfect substitute. That's the whole point. We need Jesus' perfect obedience. And then we need the pardoning power of Jesus' atonement when he died for my sins. And we need the Spirit of Christ to come upon us and to indwell us. And only then can we begin to try to live out the sermon, although still we'll never do it perfectly. The point is, nothing in the sermon speaks of a nationalistic Christian American context. America is still 1,700 years in the future. Rather, Jesus speaks of the attributes of kingdom citizens, what we should strive for when we have been full of the Spirit. I should say filled with the Spirit. Would you notice, for instance, the first line of the sermon, verse 3? 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's what he's talking about, the kingdom of heaven and what it looks like to be a member of that kingdom. Poverty of spirit, that's how you come to the cross. Broken, contrite. This is not a verse on American militarism, but a verse describing someone who has come to the foot of the cross to be born again as a citizen in God's eternal kingdom. The Beatitudes are not descriptions of the American patriot, but of someone whose life has been transformed by the gospel. Here's what they look like. They mourn. They are meek. They take all of their power and they put it under somebody else's control. They hunger and thirst for righteousness. And the example of that is in the previous chapter where Jesus, after 40 days in the wilderness of burning temptation, still would rather have God's word than physical food. That's how you hunger and thirst for righteousness. They show mercy. They are pure in heart. They are peacemakers. And they're even persecuted. Those are the Beatitudes. Now, I support the American military. I am grateful for family members going all the way back to my grandparents and great-grandparents who have served. But friends, the kingdom of heaven does not depend on Moab bombs and aircraft carriers. History actually tells us that Christianity is more likely to grow under persecution than under prosperity. Jesus' focus in verse 11 is on those who are reviled and persecuted. Not on economic prosperity, but those who are reviled and persecuted. And Jesus promises not a reward here and now, as in the prosperity gospel that has been just, that has encroached so much in the evangelicalism recently. Jesus promises, verse 12, your reward is great in heaven. Nothing in the passage speaks of our citizenships in the kingdom of man, but our citizenship of the kingdom in heaven. That's what Jesus is after. All right? It's in that context then that we find verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So what is the city on a hill? The passage does not concern American exceptionalism as much as I love America. And I resonate with Reagan, I resonate with Obama and their speeches. No problem with that. But the passage is not about America. The passage is not a formula for founding a Christian nation. In fact, many Native American converts burn more brightly on the hill than did their Puritan executioners. In fact, it was the Native American converts that were the martyrs. The New Testament, friends, nowhere tells us how to build a Christian nation. Now, I think we can take Christian principles by all means, but we're not given a formula as we were in the Old Testament law for how to go out and build a nation. Rather, the New Testament concerns Christ's eternal gospel working its way into every nation. That's the heartbeat of the New Testament, right? The eternal gospel working its way into every nation through the Back to Jerusalem movement or any other mission movement. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached to all nations, 
and then the end will come, which means, by the way, you're going to have nations until the end of the world. All right, think about that. I'll get into that later. All right, the believer, friends, is the city on the hill. The church comprised of believers is the city on a hill. Citizens of the kingdom of heaven are like cities on a hilltop, shining their light into every corner of the world, into every nation. We are first and foremost citizens of heaven. And only when we recognize our dual citizenship, and only when we recognize the primacy of our heavenly citizenship, will we be prepared, will we be prepared to live as citizens in the kingdoms below So friends, as we approach July 4th, instead of celebrating all of America's successes and ignoring all her failures, here's what I think we need to do. It's really what I preached last summer. Speak truth to the nation. Celebrate her great awakenings. Celebrate her advance of global missions. Hardly any country anywhere has done more for global missions in America. Celebrate and encourage your mighty philanthropy. We are generous people. And condemn her history of slavery and Indian genocide. Condemn it. It was evil. Condemn her global export of pornography and sensuality. Let your light shine truth in the dark corners of American history. And call her citizens to a better future when they embrace the King who was resurrected to rule all nations. We are citizens of two kingdoms. In the words of Jeremiah the prophet, seek the welfare of the city where you live. Seek the welfare of America. But in the words of Jesus, you will never seek the welfare of the city appropriately unless you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Shall we pray? Father, we are delighted to live in this country. We are delighted, Lord, to have people from many lands come here to Clemson, and to worship with us, and to attend our services. And Father, it's such a delight when they talk about their own beloved countries and their culture and their language. It's so apparent they love their countries, Lord. We delight in this. And I pray, Lord, that each and every one of us, regardless of the country where we have our citizenship, would really come to, to love the place where you've put us, and to give thanks for the beauty around us, to give thanks that we don't live in a state of anarchy, to give thanks for whatever freedoms you have chosen to give to your church. But I pray, Lord, that most of all, first of all, that we would take delight in living as citizens in the kingdom of heaven, that our first love Our primary love would be for Christ and his gospel. And I just pray, Lord, that you would give us wisdom this week and next week to really understand what it means to live between two worlds. Make us better citizens here on earth, Lord, as we pursue 
laying up treasure for ourselves in heaven, waiting for the coming of your Son who rules all nations. We pray it for Christ's sake. Amen.